couldn't have imagined any anything like that, that you yeah. could kind of just make up your own scenario. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. everyone, it's James. For this episode, I met up with Keith Munslow at his home in Providence. We talked about how he went from art school dropout to being on the board of one of the longest-running art spaces in the country. We also discussed his time touring with Big Nazo, his children's music, the process of writing Benny's The Musical, and how he's been a self-employed musician for over 30 years. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the episode, please tell a friend. And as always, follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Living Room UTB for show flyers and photos from Keith's time in music. I wanted to do two things when I was a kid, play the drums and draw. And those were the only things I cared about. Like, you know, I would bang on the piano, but that was yeah. like about it. And, uh, and like, how old were you? then like do you remember uh, like, that fascination with drums and yeah uh, you know, six seven eight and then i started yeah, studying okay. i started drums is the only instrument i studied like i started taking drum lessons at school when i was in fourth grade okay. and you know did it like but it was very much like of that like here's a snare drum and we're gonna very traditional like rudiments and mm -hmm. everything like wasn't i didn't touch a drum kit till i was in high school it was like all band stuff yeah. <laughs> yeah and then i started when i was 12 my brother went off to berkeley and he all of a sudden you know he was pursuing like they're teaching him a lot of theory and mm -hmm. so at this point like i'm not like i can read like snare drum music orchestral percussion music like that's all i can read like kind of yeah at that point and uh and so my brother started finding himself in need of somebody to you know it was just at a time where you couldn't just go on YouTube and find a track of somebody playing a 12 bar blues for you to practice to, yeah. you know? So there wasn't a lot, of, there were some things like Jamie Abersall records and tapes and stuff that you could play along with, but there wasn't a lot. And so okay. he would, so he would conscript me cause he was older and, and bossier. And he would, it would show me like a thing on the piano to play, yeah. uh, like a, a phrase or a pattern and just, Say, this is play it so that he could practice improvising. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then, you know, he sort of, he's more, much more of a natural teacher. And so then he would, like, just for fun, he would show me, like, here's a blue scale. And, like, you know, sort of my payment for being his, his background musician was he'd, <laughs> he'd teach me, like, a thing okay. on the piano. So I was just, but it was mostly just goofing around. But, oh, here's a C blue scale. Here's an F blue scale. Here's, you know, and then eventually I started knowing what these chords were i didn't really understand the theory behind them at first mm -hmm. um but it did get me interested in the piano and more specifically it became a vehicle for like oh i know like six chords i can make up a stupid song with a bunch of my friends like as a goof yeah, i got you do okay. you know what i mean yeah like so that's so so piano started to become like this vehicle for writing songs Okay. You know, which you obviously can't do on the drums. <laughs> but my brother was probably the, 
between school, like learning about music in school and then my brother in the house, like sort of actively studying it. Yeah. Um, it was like of interest, you know, but for me it was like, I liked to play music, but I was way more into the social aspect of it, of like hanging out with a bunch of my friends and, and making up again, like mostly in the early days anyway, less comedic, some like stupid things that we thought were funny and would make us laugh. Yeah. Okay. You know? So it was a lot of that. Were there comedy records that you were listening to? That oh, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of that. Our, we have uh, family in England, and when I was like, I don't know, it was eleven or twelve, maybe younger. My parents, uh, my cousins in England, sent us an LP of Monty Python, which was not yet on television here. Oh, okay. So we didn't know what the hell it was. Like yeah. we didn't know it, and so <laughs> it's just recordings of the sketches, you know, straight off the from TV. Yeah. But there's no visual context, and it's all super absurd. Mm-hmm. And some of it is really very like referential, like making pop culture references or or political culture of Britain references. So we didn't get it, but I was like in deep, and I just played it to death and memorized it. And then when I was in junior high, like talked my English teacher in eighth grade to let me and a bunch of my friends like basically perform like covers of these Monty Python sketches in the library for the whole eighth grade. Like we just learned them. And did yeah. them in bad British accents, you know, <laughs> the junior high school in West Warwick. Was that your first performance? Uh, yeah, it was certainly the first thing like that I organized, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, and it wasn't a, a music show. And then, yeah, but I did it a couple of times. We, I had this very cool English teacher who just, you know, I, we went to him and like, can we do this? And he was like, yeah. And like devoted class time to it and brought all the other eighth grades and ninth grades in and yeah, we did it a couple times. The first time we did it were they were um, they were all covers of Python sketches, and then the second time we did it, we wrote like a play, like a, a comedic, like heavily lifted from Young Frankenstein, like about mm-hmm. you know we made a monster and we accidentally put Slim Whitman's brain in his head, <laughs> and like you know and like but he let us do it, like we yeah. did this one act play. So yeah, it's funny. I never really thought about it, but that was certainly the first couple of shows that I like produced and and then by the time I get to high school then we were like putting an actual high school band together yeah you know, what was rock, that band? a rock band so that band had the, <laughs> the the dubious name Gossamer Wing which uh, if any of my fellow bandmates here they'll be like don't you scorn that name uh <laughs> but it was like you know we we were playing we actually were writing some originals too we had a fair amount of originals um you know at that point like those folks who I met in band they like high school band, in high school band like yeah. you know like concert and marching band um yeah they introduced me to you know they were all kind of heavily into the beatles which was not something i'd ever ever gotten into and they mm-hmm. were much more you know into like so this is the 80s but they're like deeply into um 60s music okay and uh and then stuff like jethro tall and you know other things that they were listening to and so in that band, I ended up being put on keyboards, which was really insane because I just, I really didn't know how to play and I didn't own a keyboard. And so I would always, whenever we played, I would have to like borrow stuff, you know, I would eventually yeah, okay. bought like this piece of garbage, like Vox Continental at a flea market. And then I would stack other keyboards on it. And then when we played dances at the high school, I just wheel the grand piano out of the auditorium into the cafeteria and play that. And so, yeah. and so, 
but I, at that band, I ended up playing keyboards again because it was uh, a thing where like I wanted to write songs. So even though I didn't know a lot, I knew enough to kind of play rock and roll. And, yeah, okay. And I knew enough blues from my brother to be able to solo on rock and roll. Like he taught me enough about improvising, you know. And, yeah. And then I, and then I, I studied it a bit in uh, in high school. I took like you know, yeah, jazz improv and a few classes. But again, what was comical and remains comical to me is that I wasn't reading. Like nobody cared that I couldn't read piano music. Like the high school jazz band teacher put me in as the piano player in my senior year. And I was like, I don't know how to read piano music. And he's like, well, can you read chord symbols? And I was like, some of them, you know, like, so I knew what chords were and I knew mostly how to make them, you know, I knew like the basic stuff and then learned along the way. So he would just, he and or my brother, I would get like these piano music sheets for these songs and jazz band and they would turn them into chord charts oh, okay and then i so to this day that's that's how i communicate musically is like chord charts yeah um because it was again it was not a thing that i thought was gonna I, it was something i enjoyed but i still had it in my head in high school like you know go to art school become an illustrator and then play music as a a thing that you like not yeah, as a thing a that would yeah. is a hobby yeah. yeah, that was always kind of the idea, and uh, so all the while I'm kind of also pursuing visual art, like trying to like make that. A oh, thing. Okay. So, did you play out with this band? Yeah, we show? played. Yeah. yeah, we did. We played a lot of high school dances. Yeah. Uh, you know the Sadie Sadie Hawkins dance and a lot of that stuff, and then we also played. We got ourselves roped into a bunch of Battle of the Bands that we did, and then we would play like you know, the drummer's dad, you know, runs like a sportsman's club in West Warwick. So we do, you know, we had, we got gigs where we could get them. Okay. Um, but we were, yeah, we were deadly serious about it. Like, like, you know, we took ourselves super seriously mm-hmm. and it was like a crazy configuration of a band. Cause again, a bunch of friends. Like, so it was like, you know, we had three guys, all of whom played guitar, none of whom were really a bass player. So they would just take turns playing bass yeah. on songs. Um, we had a drummer, we had me, and then we had two uh, girls who both sang and played the flute. So we were doing like this like moody blues stuff and like, yeah. oh, we're covered for flute. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, so it was a little, you know, it was an insane configuration for a band. Mm-hmm. But we were popular at the school and... It, for me in high school, it was like between that band and just being a, a wise ass, like that's what's that's what saved me from bullies in school. Like, you know, it was like, oh, you're you're in that band. Like, OK, we'll leave you alone. Yeah. I mean, it was a thing, you know, it was like you, I, it was definitely a thing like in junior high, like, you know, super nerd got picked on. And like, but high school was like that became a way to. Yeah. No, I had the same stay safe. experience where it's like, hey. I heard your band doesn't suck. Exactly. And that's... <laughs> you're some, all right. Your that's, band you're doesn't right. suck, yeah. <laughs> and then they wanted to buy weed off me. Yes, of course. Of course. I was like, I don't... Of course. Yeah. <laughs> do that. <laughs> now, you, now you suck again. <laughs> um, did you play any Rhode Island venues with that band? Or what was the... No. Like, I mean, oh, we, I think we played, like, the Covered Wagon or something. Like, you know, we would play, like, these, like, weird restaurant things here and mm-hmm. there. But we didn't play any clubs with that band. Um, I didn't really start playing in clubs till. That band broke up in, I think, in my senior year. And then after that, me and the, one of the guitar players in that band started writing songs. And then we kind of roped my brother in uh, to to also play with us. And then, so then, like... What was that band? So that band was eventually called New and Improved. And so it was me and my brother, um, 
Joe Auger, and then we had various people come through playing bass. So Stan and Joe played guitar, and then we had bass players. Yeah. Um, and so that, right around that time, so I, I went off to art school after high school and uh, to this college that no longer exists that was in New Bedford called the Swain School of Design. I got into RISD, but couldn't afford to go and like didn't have enough scholarship money or Pell Grants to afford RISD at that time. So I went to this other school, mm-hmm. and it was in New Bedford, and I hated it. Uh, mostly I hated living in New Bedford. And, really? uh, and I think at that time, yeah, I think I got very disillusioned and, you know, it was probably just being a freshman and just being in an unfamiliar place, but it was the whole vibe of art school to me in this particular group of people. Uh, it seemed incredibly pretentious to me. And like when I would go to parties and you know, people would talk about art, like it just, yeah, just people were taking themselves far too seriously. Mm-hmm. So my only friend consequently at that school was a musician also was a, was a drummer. And so he and I became buddies. And then, so I dropped out of school after three semesters because I just couldn't take living there. And, you know, my mother and father were like, okay, well, then you're going to have to work. And so, you know, I just mm-hmm. got a job uh, at Sears and changing tires and, you know, and then meanwhile, putting this band together with my brother and, yeah. my, and my other friend. And, uh, and so right around that time, I got a call from my high school art teacher who found out, and she had been pushing me very aggressively towards, you know, you're going to be an illustrator, go be an illustrator, mm-hmm. you know, go draw greeting cards for Paramount. And, uh, and she was very, very pushy. And so she called me, I was still living with my parents, so she calls me to, you know, she knows I've dropped out of art school. Mm-hmm. She's pissed off about that. And she has met Bert Krenka, who was an artist who was running a class. She didn't say much about what the class was. She said, he's teaching this class at the Ben Weiss Gallery in Providence, and I want you and Auger. So Joe Auger was the other guy that I was in this, one of the other people I was in this band with, and who was also, you know, did some visual art. And uh, she was like, I want you to go take this class, bring your portfolio, and like, you know, like insisted that we go. Okay. So we went and we met this guy and Bert was a very charismatic guy and he was a painter. And so he was teaching this class and it was like, well, you know, what is this class? And, and, you know, he would have us do drawing and stuff. But then eventually it was like, just bring in projects you want to work on and I'll kind of guide you. Okay. Uh, I didn't really know what it, I mean, I was just, he was very charismatic. And so he's in the Ben Weiss gallery. And where was that? On Charles street. Okay. On Charles street. And, uh, so, we would, st- me and Joe would stay after this class. It was like half a dozen of us. And, uh, and there was a piano in the gallery. So we would kind of jam and Bert would play the bongo or the congas and Joe would play the guitar. We would just jam and sit around and talk. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was like, you know, I'm asking him questions. I've never really met like a person who's like a, an artist for a job. Yeah. And, uh, I'm like, you know, like, where do you live? And he's like, Oh, I live here. I'm like, this is a gallery. He's like, yeah, well, there's like a little apartment in the gallery and the guy who owns it. I trade, I curate the shows and he lets me live here and he lets me eat in the restaurant that he also owns next door every once in a while. And like, like it blew my mind because I, I think I just, you know, I was was very blue collar family and I just, I, I couldn't have imagined any, anything like that, that you could kind of just make up your own scenario. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a traditional job at all. He was basically trading, curating for an apartment. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what? And so, you know, Joe and I have this band and we're taking classes from this guy. 
And r- like roughly what year was this? Uh, this would have been 84. Because okay. ASU 20, I think, launched in 85. Yeah, okay. So it was either early 85 or late 84. But yeah. what Joe and I didn't know was that Bert was looking to kind of recruit people because he and some of his other friends had were they were already in the process of devising AS220. They okay. had, they had, yeah. you know they basically they were all visual artists and they were tired you know and some of them did really edgy stuff and they were tired of the jurying process that galleries use. Mm-hmm. So they were like we want to make a place. They sent a manifesto to the Providence Eagle which was like one of the arts papers in Providence at the time and they said we want to you know basically art shouldn't be juried. And so they they launched ASU-20 on the third floor of, of PPAC um, in 1985. And, you know, they were already, you know, they were shrewd. Like, you know, Bert Krenka, Susan Clausen, Peter Boyle, Scott Siebel, a bunch of these artists, they knew, like, they were all, like, in their 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some of them were older. And they were like, it can't just be us, like, because there's no sustainability to that. So, so Bert was kind of like looking into the community, like, we need some young creative people to like populate this place. Yeah. So that was part of what this class was, and it's why the, I think why I don't want to, you know, assume what Bert was thinking, but I think it was why the class was so kind of loosey goosey. And and so then the next thing I know, like ASU twenty, oh, like, oh, we're opening this thing, and you know, he called it like a coffee house and a gallery. Like again, I was. 19 like i didn't know what unjuried uncensored i didn't know the ramifications of that i didn't really know like politically what they were about i just like oh we're opening a coffee house and like you know so and it's a gallery and you can you know so then he's like can your band play like the first show so we're like uh yeah sure so so we played the first show at asu 20 ever uh with that band new and improved um and it was you know there were I don't know, 30 people there and like, you know, and, they, and then it was the thing. But because I was living in West Work, like I didn't, I wasn't at ASC 20 all the time at that point. And so we, you know, we would just, again, this band, we're like, we're taking ourselves very seriously. I'm working a day job, but we're like, all we do is rehearse. And we, we, mm-hmm. we play some gigs in Providence. Um, the Cage, which was in the Jewelry District, I don't remember exactly where, but the Cage was a club we played, um, definitely played uh, a few shows at the living room when they were on promenade yeah um we played at rocket and uh and then we played a lot of shows at as220 and but mm-hmm. then very shortly after being in the space in ppac as220 got kicked out of ppac and then they opened up their space on richmond street where they remained for i don't know it was half a dozen years they were right there yeah and so when they moved over there that's when i became really involved in as220 um Again, because it was like socially, like it felt like my tribe, you know, like, okay. and I, whereas like going, like the people at art school, I was like, no, like mm-hmm. there was, and it was probably just, you know, they're like youth, you know, there's all these 18 year old kids, but, but all the artists that were hanging out at ASC 20 were older than me. And mm-hmm. I thought they were super hip and, you know, they just had a, they were, it was scruffy and, um, they appreciated the talents that I had, like they liked that I could play music and I could play the piano, I could play the drums, and I could draw, like they were, they were into it, Yeah, you know? And so I started doing stuff there, like I would play with my band or I would get involved in these cabarets that they had every week. And, uh, and then I eventually got roped into the sort of in-house performance art troupe 
there called Meatballs Fluxus. And that was like, again, I was, me and Joe Auger got pulled into that and we were, you know, the certainly the youngest guys in the group. And yeah. so, and it was very like challenging performance art stuff that had a musical component, like crazy stuff. And what, one of the things I really liked about it was we would get together on a Thursday and people would bring their ideas and we'd kind of put it together and then we'd perform it on Saturday. It was very quick. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was like, you know, but it was like any, what I liked about it, because I was a creative kid, like anything you showed up with, they were like, yeah, let's, you know, okay. there was, you know, so I came in one week and I was like, I was like, well, I want to have a jam with all of us where all of your noisemakers or instruments have to fit in a cigar box. Like you can't have anything bigger than fits in a cigar box. And yeah. they were like, oh, oh, so everybody like showed up, you know, with cigar boxes, like with, you know, kalimbas and kazoos and like just, and we all got on stage and like put our faces in the box and like played, played these little things and sat around in a circle. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, and so, so for me, that was like a magical thing that I could just show up with a really crazy idea like that and th and then we could just do it and mm -hmm. that seemed magical to me so so yeah so i'm still like at this point kind of like living at home and uh working a day job and and then doing this crazy stuff still playing in a band like mm -hmm. you know i had my already had my fingers in a lot of pies and one of the shows i did at asu 20 with with my band which now had morphed into this a, a trio. Joe Auger started playing bass because we just had too many crazy bass players and it got winnowed down to a power trio that we called Curio. And it was a really good band. Like it was like certainly the best drumming I've ever done in my life. And so the guy who started Big Nazo, uh, Erminio Pinkway, he had just graduated from RISD. He was kind of starting this like puppet and mask company. And he mm -hmm. ironically took over the space in PPAC that ASU 20 had been in. Oh, really? Um, wow. And PPAC was fine with that because they, you know, there were no punk bands playing and <laughs> like the stuff ASU 20 was doing was too much for them. But so Erminio had the studio there <clears throat> and he saw me play with Curio, he saw me playing drums yeah. and he got my number from Bert and he called me up and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm doing this gig, you know, and I didn't really know what he was about. And he encouraged me to come over to the studio and I went to his studio and I was blown away by the puppets. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I was blown away by it was because to me, I, I showed him my sketchbook. I was like, these look like 
drawings that I've been doing for my whole life, like very caricature, asking big noses and exaggerated features. So yeah. I connected with the puppets right away. Yeah. I knew nothing about him. I knew nothing about what he was trying to do. But he was like, we're going to do a show, you know, and I think it was at a school or something. I don't remember. But he, you know, he's like, I want you to play drums in the show. And I was like, okay. And then at some point before the show happened, he called me and was like, ah, you know, the keyboard player can't do the show. Like, can, I heard you play keyboards too. I was like, ah, kind of. And, you know, I wasn't really playing a lot. I didn't own, again, I didn't own any keyboards. Mm-hmm. It shifted my focus over back to drums. And uh, he's like, well, the guy, you know, the guy has a keyboard and you can just use it. And mm-hmm. like, but and the beginning of Big Nazo, like, very had, had the idea of having this band or was. Yeah, like, he, okay. he right away, he like was, you I'm know, had two components or three components, really. He did, you know, gigs where we would kind of do strolling around things in character, which also really appealed to me. Yeah. Um, and then shows at schools, which were like, like a four person show with just me on music. Yeah. And then he always had a band and the band was in there early on playing like, you know, rhythm and blues and cool music, you know, but I, again, I was like, he had at this point, he had all these guys who were like, were playing, had been playing with blues musicians and were really good. And like, and I didn't know anything about, like I knew enough to kind of get by. Yeah. And he kind of just threw me in with these guys and they were nice, but I felt way, way, way out of my depths. And, uh, Mm -hmm. was doing it and got this real education. Like they were all, really cool guys and they would you know see what i was trying to do and you know the drummer would be like have you ever listened to professor professor long i'm like i don't know who that is he's like you should like you're a drummer i was like yeah he was like you you play piano like a drummer and i was like you know i didn't know what yeah. they were talking about and they were like just <laughs> go to chips moldy oldies and buy professor long records and go home and listen to them and, mm-hmm. and i just you know they were all older than me i was like what you know and so there was this real thing that was going on at that time where like all the artists at asu 20 most of whom were older than me like i had some peers there too my age but a lot of people older than me and then a lot of the guys in the band in big nazo were also older than me or at least more experienced than me okay and and uh so they were like go listen to this and i would get these records and be like oh my god this is so listening to professor long here like blew my mind apart because he really was playing piano like it was a drum you mm-hmm. know it was a very caribbean kind of influence and, and percussive and it that's what like hooked me into that music and what else uh, did you do with big Naza? like how long were you playing with I, them? I played with big Naza for almost 10 years maybe it was 10 um i joined in 88 we so i i gotten a job so this is a substantial moment too that i think it's worth mentioning i got a job as a what was a, a paste up artist, which is not a job that exists anymore. It was right before computers took over graphic design. So mm-hmm. everything was done by hand. Like type was printed out on like photographic paper and then cut up with an exacto knife and then laid out on a gridded board and you'd like wax the stuff and stick it down. So like menus and flyers and posters and stuff. So, there were the designers who worked at this, this place called Wolf Lithograph in, in, uh, down near the airport. And they would design these posters. They would print out all the type. They would show me, like, this is what the thing looks like. And then I would cut it apart mm-hmm. with an exacto knife and paste it up. So that was a paste apart. So to me, it was like an entry-level graphic design job. Yeah. And I, you know, so I was like, oh, I got a job in art. Like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And I had that job for about two months. And Erminio from Big Nazo said... 
we're going on this tour in Canada. It's it's the the, the sort of anchor of the tour it was really just going to Halifax for a couple of weeks to do this Buskers Festival, and it was like we're going to perform as many shows as we can fit in a day, um, and people will you know throw money in the hat. We'll split all the money. So there's no guarantee of anything. Um, it did turn out that we made piles of money doing it, but I didn't know that. And so it was all I knew was like a two or three week thing where I was like, had to go do this tour. And I was like, well, yeah. I can't do that because I have this job and I only just got it. Yeah. So I go home. He actually called me at my job and talked to me about this. And then I come home and I'm having dinner with my parents and, um, you know, like, I'm obviously like having like, I'm, I'm sort of freaking out and my parents are like, what's the matter with you, man? And, and like, so I was like, this guy from Big Nazo asked me to go on this tour and it's to Canada and it's for this. I tell him all about the tour and I was like, but I, you know, and, and then I, but I'm working at Wolf Lithograph and I'm doing paste up and like, so, you know, I just, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And like my parents like look at each other. And again, this is like my parents who like never had money and like, but they, my dad looks at my mom and they're like, my father goes like, what do you mean? You don't know what to do. Like go on the tour. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah. Who knows if you'll ever get a chance to do this again. You can always get another job, quit your job. And I was like, it was absolutely not what I thought they were going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, was a moment. It was a defining moment because they were so like, what? Like, yeah. so I went into work the next day and I quit my job. Yeah. And, uh, and I went on that tour and like that job, that was the last regular job I ever had. Wow. That was it. Like, it was like, and that wasn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how it turned out. Uh, so I went on that tour and, I've been self-employed ever since. Mm -hmm. So it was, and I was 23. Wow. And, uh, and so I went on that tour and, and again, I met people on that tour. They were street performers, but these, these were not like ca casual street performers. These are like lifers, like mm -hmm. pirates. And, and, uh, <laughs> and they, they, again, some of the coolest people I'd ever met. My, I'd never met anybody like this, but they, they shared this thing that, Bert Krenka also had and all the artists that AFC 20 had, which was that they were making up their own way. Yeah. You know, right. some of these people didn't, and this is not a life I imagined for myself, but it was still something where I was like, wow, like they, some of them had no permanent residence. Like they just would go where the weather was and go from festival to festival, from city to city, all over the world and travel and just make cash money and were off the grid. Yeah. And again, like I didn't want to be that, but there was an element of that that I was like, I like that. I like that they're mavericks, not playing by the rules, yeah, you know, yeah. and they're, they're just following their thing and going. And so mm -hmm. that really had a profound impact on me, that festival, like immensely. So between ASU 20 and like going now, so now I'm like in Big Nazo and it's the only source of revenue that I have. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's, it's not enough to live, but I get it. I move in with, with a roommate in Providence and, uh, you know, and I start living in Providence and, uh, and it's like enough I'm, I'm getting by. Yeah. Okay. So, and Big Nazo now is like, we're playing all over the place. Like it, it's, it gets busy and, um, you know, and he doesn't tour a ton, but he tours and we're going to cool places and, yeah. you know, yeah. around the country and then eventually out of the country.
That's awesome. Yeah. So that was it. That was. Were you playing in other bands while you're yep. with with Naza? Um. So yes, not at first, but for a while it was just Big Naza. But then through ASU twenty. Uh, through this cabaret, I, you know, Bert had this character that he used to do called Sir Guy de Guy the Portigui, and he would host this cabaret of the Oddly Normal, and he had, he had a band that he called, there were so many, like, things that I'm now like, wow, like, I think about, you can't really, whatever, like, judge their appropriate or inappropriateness, but I think about it as like, man, so he had a band, his, like, sort of house band was called His Panic Band. Like his, Sir Guy yeah. the Porty and his panic band. So I, what, that was like a thing that my friend Chris Adams, who was also a piano player, was doing a lot. And then I ended up doing it when Chris couldn't doing it, do it. And then I don't really remember exactly how this happened, but like me and a, a few friends, my, uh, Rick Massimo, Paige Van Antwerp, Al Gredfriend, um, ended up being like these characters of like New Orleans musicians. So I would do this character called Kingfish Lear and, and Kingfish Lear spoke in this undecipherable like New Orleans dialect. Like, so you couldn't understand anything he was saying yeah. except like every fourth word. It would just be this deep, it was like sort of modeled on <clears throat> Dr. John and like, but it was oh, yeah. way in like I see grown up compound tainted weasel roam in the pickup truck and bullet. It was just <laughs> gibberish. Yeah. It was gibberish with a New Orleans accent. Yeah. And so we would play for the cabaret like as this band. And so every Saturday I would write a song and we would do it. Mm-hmm. And it was like this barrel house, like really ragged blues. Like Paige just played a snare drum and Rick played bass and Alec played accordion. I played the upright piano in AC20. And so we did that for a long time. And eventually we reached this point where we were like, we have a lot of songs. Yeah, okay. We should do another show. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and so I told Bert and he was really upset about it at first. And like, people are always taking things out. I guess to 20, like, and he got really mad. And, uh, but we did it anyway. And even though it pissed him off, we changed the name of the band to the smoking jackets. And we played a show at cafe Zog. For for tips, yeah, and uh, and Bert came to the show, and a bunch of our friends came to the show, and after the show, Bert was like, "All right, I was wrong." <laughs> like he was like, "You guys should just just play gigs." Yeah. So we continued to play for him as the Smoking Jackets for a while, but then the Smoking Jackets started getting gigs, and mm-hmm. and again, this was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to I'm listening to as much blues as I can, like jump blues and like like backcountry blues and like these. You know, I honestly would go into like into uh, into chips or into Tom's tracks, and I would like just go through records and like look for records with pictures of like old guys playing beat up pianos, and be like, oh, maybe this, like yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. I had no, there's no internet to like know, you know, yeah. or so the guys in Big Nazo would tell me, oh, go listen to Champion Jack Dupree, like, go listen to Roosevelt Sykes. They would tell me about these guys. Um, and I would go find them. And then, mm-hmm. so I was just learning it off records, you know, just learning how to play that music. I was way, way, way in. And it was a really fun form to write lyrics to. It was really simple. Okay. You know, and it was really, um, there was a, like, I don't want to say all of it was comedic, but there was like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink to a lot of the music. And that appealed to me too. Like, yeah. So I would just write about stupid stuff in my life and my cat and, you know, whatever it was. And uh, so I was doing that at the same time that I was in Big Naza. And then yeah. I also got roped into 
shortly after that, I got roped into the Neo 90s dance band, which was a, another AS220 project that was an enormous funk band. And the only criteria to be in the band, this is true, uh, for many years, the only criteria was can you make a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. rehearsal? If you can be there at Sunday at 9 a.m., you can be in the band. That's yeah. the criteria. <laughs> so that means like the band could potentially have 50 people in it. Like, and it went through like phases of size. Like it, I think it was as big as like 14 or 15 guys at some point, like just a giant horn section and percussion. And, wow. Um, and that was not a style of music I was familiar with either, like a little yeah. bit. You know, but I didn't. Like, who was writing the songs in that? Uh, well, I, me, um, yeah. uh, Chris Adams, who was the trombone player and also a keyboard player. Uh, you know, Tom Paulus, who has since passed, uh, was one of the singers. Um, there was a guy named Tom Hurdle who was like, you know, could kind of play a saxophone, but he would show up with these like very minimalist, very funny like lyrics and would set them in music. I so eventually, it became me because like the thing about a funk band is like. The only thing you need to start the engine is a riff. Yeah. You just need a riff. So mm -hmm. I would go like, I got this riff. And they'd be like, yeah, that's a good riff. And then Take it would go. Then. So it was a <laughs> lot of group writing. Yeah. You know, Chris Adams, uh, for my money, Chris Adams was the best songwriter in the band. And, and he really knew how to write that stuff. And he was deeply immersed in bands like War and uh, greasy, funky stuff that was just so cool. Yeah. And that band played um, the every last Saturday of the month. At AC20, and it would be packed and just sweaty, crazy dancing insanity. Yeah, and that went on for many years, uh, you know, and and it continued when they moved into the new building on uh, Empire Street for a few years. It, and then a lot of the people moved away. Some people got sick, and the band changed personnel, and eventually it just got to the point where it was really hard to keep it going. But but in its heyday, in the early days of the band, like we did, we played the Ocean Mist, and we played a lot of shows at Lupo's. And uh, and the Met and G Flags and uh, the Campus Club and you know there were the band like nobody ever made any money because there were too many people <laughs> uh, but we we played a lot of shows and it was it was great fun great bunch of guys and yeah girls. there was a lot of um, overlap you know Rick Massimo played bass in both of those bands yeah you know he played in the Smoking Jacks he played in the O 90s he didn't play in Big Nazo so but there was like some of the guys in Big Nazo you know the sax player in the O 90s was also in Big Nazo and then he was eventually in Smoking Jacks there's a lot of incestuous kind of like you know we we're like let's do another project let's do another project let's do another project yeah. and you know and so and I had a lot of time you know and I was living very close to the bone and just yeah. You know, but it was this incredible immersion because at a certain point I was like in the Meatballs Fluxus, the inner nineties dance band, Big Nazo, Smoking Jackets, like all at the same time. And it was just <laughs> insane. got to this point where I was like, I need to do a different thing. Like, I got to do a different thing. I'm not spending time. I had a studio at AC20 I wasn't working at because now I had internet at home. And so I would just do all my songwriting at home. And the board of directors meetings fell out of my depth. So I met up with Bert for a coffee. And I was like, I need a new way to plug in, man. Like, I want to stay plugged into this space, but I, mm -hmm. I feel disconnected. He's like, oh, I'll think about it. 
I was like, I know that's not your job, but just, and I sort of imagined because at this point I had been doing music and, uh, stories for kids for a few years. So this is in the early, this is in 2005. So I started doing stuff for kids in like 97, 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll back up to that. But, but I imagined that what he was going to say to me, ASU 20 was just launching a youth program. Like, oh, maybe he'll get me into like teach youth workshops or whatever. I yeah. Know. Yeah. So he called me back a few hours later and he was like, um, how do you feel about running like a cabaret or like, you know, a variety show here? Like we used to do with the pork shop lounge and the cabaret, the alley. And I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. And he was like, we have, you know, we can pay you to do it for a year. You run it and we'll pay you and you curate it. Even though ASU 20 is open and on jury, the show will be curated. You pick what's in it. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I kind of sat at home in my apartment on Whipple street and I typed up like, okay, I want my, I want to pick the musicians. I want to have a house band, pick the musicians. I want to have a house sketch comedy slash performance art troupe. And I want to pick the guests. So I learned a lot watching the Porkchop Lounge. And I learned a lot being in the cabaret of the oddly normal about what kind of stuff works and how shows flow. And mm-hmm. um, so I called him back and was like, all right, here's my pitch. I emailed it to you. And like, I don't want to do it every week. That's too much. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to have some time to refine the, the material like once a month first Sunday of the month and we'll call it the empire review. And, uh, and then that was that. And that show is now, yeah, we just turned 13 in July. So cool. 13 years of that. And it has gone through a lot of, uh, changes of people who were involved in the show, uh, in the, in the comedy troupe. Um, but it's, it's in an amazing place now. And, uh, it, again, I learned, I learned how to direct a show run a show mm-hmm. like I really did from it was from all of that experience in Big Nazo being directed and in in Meatballs Fluxus like creating stuff from scratch you know mm-hmm. so all of that stuff is in there even though and and the Python that I listened to like it, it's all in the sketches that we do in the review yeah. all of that stuff was I got an incredible education from a lot of really talented people yeah so and I know you work with Wage House and Pawtucket as yes. well. Yes. So about the musical improv. Yeah. That so did? that was a thing that came. Um, I started um, doing some work. Well, like I was, I learned like improv from being in Big Naza, which was not to say I learned about improv as a as a way it's performed, but I learned, you know, I mean, I was improvising characters and crazy stuff my whole life, but Big Naza was like an immersion in like character improv because so many mm-hmm. of the stuff so many of the gigs we did, like we would stroll around at festivals for three hours just in character, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of the shows were built through improv. Yeah. Um, so then I started like taking, you know, little workshops in it and I started learning games. Um, so then I started like doing it with kids as workshops, okay. you know, and I would, and so, but then I became, uh, you know, friends with uh, some of the guys yeah, in uh, with the people in Improv Jones um, through my my ex wife who was my then girlfriend, um, and we so she said we should do like a musical improv in Jones and uh, and I so I saw them do an improvised musical with another piano player and it was like oh, okay I can like hang with that they would just basically do like scenes into songs and I just make up the songs I was like I know enough about music to like and it was really exciting. So mm-hmm. I did a few of those with Jones um, for a few years. And uh, and then I started, you know, dabbling with other stuff. And then, again, while I was uh, married to my ex, uh, sh- I got involved with the Providence Improv Guild. 
and did more musical improv there. And I started uh, kind of refining how I, how I viewed it, you know, and how I thought it could, again, having seen no one else do it, like, yeah. just like, I think it should be this and this and this and this and this. But then I would start to see other, you know, we eventually got into the New York City Musical Improv Fest and I would see how other groups did it. And like, oh, they're using like song forms and like that appealed less to me. I, I was like, you shouldn't like predetermine what the form of the song is going to be like you, cause who knows what you need? You know, it's yeah. more like, let's get everybody an understanding of how songs are shaped and then let's create that shape based on what we need, you know, cause maybe you need a song that's 20 seconds long, you know, and if you have a song yeah. form, now you're married to this first verse chorus, verse, you, know, you yeah. can't get out of it if it sucks. Yeah. So I never liked that. So I, I try to like figure out how to, how to teach it. And I, so I ended up teaching it at, at, uh, at the Improv Guild uh, with Jimmy Sorrell, who's a really talented improviser and is now a member of the Empire Review. And then I eventually, you know, I get divorced. And so I stopped working at the Improv Guild, you know, largely for personal reasons. But I, I, I kept teaching musical improv there for a little while. But then Wage House opened and it was a way for me to bring it somewhere else that wasn't a loaded emotional space for me. And so, mm-hmm. I, so I started working at Wage House. And, and they were really great and they, you know, really... Uh, welcomed me and, you know, uh, because it was a, a, a curriculum that I had basically you know, kind of built up from scratch, it was mm-hmm. like, you know, I would just do it there. And they, so that's another kind of great relationship because a lot of the folks involved with Wage House are members of the Empire Review too. And it's a continuing in this tradition of like a lot of cross pollination that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, and a lot of the sketch we write from the review, not a lot of it, but some of it is built through improv and, you know, everybody's conversant in comedic songwriting. And uh, so whether we're improvising them or writing them for the review, it's all, you know, it's all in the same wheelhouse. Yeah. And it's all coming out of that place. So that's something that I really, really uh, improvised music, like doing musical um, improvised musicals is like definitely a thing that between that and the review, those are the gigs that I do that are, I call them mental health gigs because they're just like, it's like soul food for me. Like it's the, yeah, the people that I get to work with are just some of the kindest, coolest, most talented people I've, I've ever had the pleasure to work with. They're just an amazing group of people. And, and it's, it's an incredible amount of fun. And, and one of the goals early on when I, I, a few years ago, I dug up that little outline of what I thought the empire review should be in, mm-hmm. at center Bert. And I was like, you know, it's still, that's what it is. It's still that, like it's gone through a lot of personnel changes and stuff, but it's still kind of that same vision. And one of the things I wrote in that list was like, I want to make a thing that builds the community of artists I'm making it with, but also is something that embraces the community at large. You know, like that we wanted to make it feel like the people who come to that show feel like they, they should feel like they own it, like Mm -hmm. it's theirs, you know? And, and, and that is the thing that is really special about the review that, um, that I think everybody who's involved in the show is deeply invested in. And that, that got proven true when Benny's closed and we decided after many years we were not going to play Super Bowl Sunday because we just got tired of begging people to come to that show. So we would play the, we'd play a show on the first Sunday of December and then we would do a New Year's Eve show. And then we said, okay, we're, so we're not doing, 
you know, technically we have all of January off. We're not doing a show on the first Sunday of February. So now we have two months, whereas normally we have one month yep. to write the show. So that felt like a huge gift the first mm-hmm. year we did it in 2017, early 2017. Um, and right around that time that we decided we were going to do that, Benny's announced that it was closing. So I said to the stage manager, Nikki Mariani, who's, uh, you know, co-produces the show with me and uh, is a dear friend. Like we should, maybe we should do a, a, like a musical because we've kind of dabbled with that form in mm-hmm. the show. Maybe we should write a musical. We have two months, you know, and she, you know, and she texted me. She was like, you know, Benny's a requiem question mark, like too sad. And then <laughs> like, I was like, it's a little sad, but then we started talking to people and like people were so kind of up in arms about it closing. But you know, then you also started hearing like, Oh my God, like there are way more of these stores than I thought there were. And they're all going to close and all these people are going to lose jobs. And and so we got together and it was like, there's a story, there's a story there. Mm-hmm. There's a story. Like we shouldn't try and tell a, a history of Benny's and nor should we try to tell any, like we shouldn't presuppose to know why they're closing and, and any of that stuff. We should just tell the story of who this affects, which is the people in the community and the people with those jobs. So we wrote that show. Mm-hmm. And again, just, okay, we wrote this thing and Nikki very casually sent out a press release about it and the journal printed it the next day. And then like, you know, normally, you know, we've sold out some of the empire reviews over the years, but you know, normally we got to promote the shows a lot to get a good house. And, uh, cause it, when you run a thing for 13 years, you got to keep reminding people that it exists, Yeah, you know, like you got to keep doing that work. So we talked to the people in the, sh- in the cast and they're like, is everybody on board to do this? And people are, yes, we are on board to do it. Okay. By the time we got together to brainstorm the show, the show did not exist. It had sold out at AC20. It was just, we were just doing it on the first Sunday. Like we always did. So like it sold and we were like, Oh, (laughs) like, (laughs) uh, like, uh, all right. So, you know, so we felt the weight of that. Yeah. And, uh, and we worked really hard on the show and so we talked to AS20 like can we add another show they were like do the next Sunday so we did the next Sunday and that sold out and then we were like should we do it again so then we like asked the Columbus about doing it up in their upstairs which yep. was like twice the size capacity wise of AS20 like 250 seats so we booked a weekend at the Columbus and that sold out and so there was this this thing where it was like one of the members of the of the cast said something that was really profound and it it speaks a lot to the kind of work that I like to do um, in the Empire View and, and, and also the work that I do with kids. Um, he said, you know, so a lot of the people who came to see the show were obviously people who were from the community who love Benny's, like all of us. And the but show then, is Benny's the Musical. Benny's the Musical, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Benny's the Musical, which was, you know, more in the form of a Broadway musical. Yeah. Just we, but we group wrote it. You know, we wrote it all as a group. And so, but there were also a lot of employees Bennies that were coming like there were whole groups of people who worked at particular Bennies who came to the show like 10 or 12 of them and they had their shirts on and their badges like oh wow just showed up like drove from Massachusetts and and like you know yeah heard about it and came and uh and we'd look out at the audience like when we were playing the closing song and they would just be tears and uh people were like so effusive in you know, it wasn't like praise, like they loved the show, but it like, it was so important to them mm-hmm. as part of a way to grieve this thing that everybody loved, yeah. you know? And so we were, you know, it was exactly what we wanted to happen, but like, we couldn't have like asked for it to turn out better. And mm-hmm. and one of the cast members, uh, Stuart Wilson said, you know, it's, it's incredibly rare that you get to perform 
a piece of work for the very people who need to hear it and see it. Yeah. And, and it, and that, that's what it is. Like, so, you know, it, like the, the meaning of all of it was like, Whoa, like, you know, so we just finished, uh, we're about to release, we recorded the soundtrack cause people, so many people asked us for it. So we just were like, okay. So we like went in a studio and like, really, cool. we recorded all the songs and many of the people in the cast, you know, they're all com- comedic actors. I'd say about half of them would call themselves singers and the other half would be like, I don't know how to sing. And like, yeah. um, some of them, it was the first time they'd ever been in a recording studio. Yeah. Where did you do uh, that? We did it with George Dussault at um, Galilee Productions in Cumberland and, uh, where I, I record my kids stuff and uh, an amazing engineer and musician uh, amazing guy and he was really patient with us because it was you know it was a it was an I'd done a ton of recording but I never like oh yeah like this song like nine people sing on it yeah, like you know it's a it's a lot of, it's a lot it's a lot to keep track of and a lot of you know uh, varying levels of confidence and mm-hmm. um, and also a lot of moving parts in the songs you know and uh, but the cast completely kicked ass and and the band kicked ass and George kicked ass and it was great. So we're about to release that. And I suspect, you know, maybe we'll mount that show again, but it was, it was really um, a dream come true because it was just, yeah, a moment where, and and I don't even mean this in a fourth wall way, but there's always like a, a a space between the performers and the audience. There's always space there and there's an other to it mm-hmm. and you know we always are going in the review towards the direction of like cross those like make the audience feel more ownership and but that show was like the moment where we just all felt like we were in the same room just being part of a thing as opposed to like we're doing a show for you mm-hmm. it, you know what i mean like yeah. they they were as because they were really feeding like their energy was really feeding the performances and um the emotion of it was charged and uh, it was, it was really cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. It was really cool. did you get into writing children's music? So I'll backtrack a little for that. So when I was, uh, I was involved heavily in the ASU 20 in the nineties. And, um, one of the people in the smoking jackets, uh, Paige Van Antwerp had worked at a recording studio, had worked at celebration sound and she had been involved in some sessions with Bill Harley. Mm-hmm. I had never met him. And she said, you got to meet Bill Harley, man. Like you guys are like separated at birth. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, Really? And she was like, oh my God, you're so alike. It's absurd. And I never met him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know what he was about and, or any of that. And, you know, again, all kind of pre-internet days. And uh, and I certainly, and I didn't have kids, so I had no reason to know a children's performer. But then uh, I got a call at AS220 from 
from a woman who worked in Bill's office. Like she called me there cause I didn't have a phone. I wasn't in my parents. I was like, I didn't have any way to be reached. Mm-hmm. And she was like, um, you know, do you know who Bill Harley is? I was like, Oh yeah. And you know, like, she's like, well, he's, you know, he's a keyboard player. He had a band at the time called the troublemakers. And, uh, they, they, you know, he did most of his shows solo, but he would play some shows with, with the band. Their keyboard player, who's uh, Steve Snyder, who was a huge musician in Providence, um, mm-hmm. uh, very influential musician, you know, in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and uh, he was going off to work in public radio. And uh, can you play this show? Okay. You know, and I was like, what's the show? And so Bill, at this time, he's not anymore, but at the time, A and M Records had a children's wing of their label yeah and he was on it and so they would get him into these crazy big shows and so there was this rainforest benefit that was sting was organizing at the greek theater in, in california and uh so it was like sting and bobby mcferrin and uh, don henley and little richard like wow. huge names and then and then the troublemakers are in this <laughs> show too and she was yeah. like so the thing that really struck me was you know on in this five minute phone conversation. She told me how much money I was getting paid. She had, or, you know, she said, I'm going to put a tape of the songs you need to learn in the mail. There's a rehearsal on this date from this time to this time. And it was so like organized and like, and that was with all due respect to all the other things I was doing at that time. That was not the experience I had been having at that point. Mm-hmm. And I, it was so like super professional. And mm-hmm. like, I was like, Whoa. Um, so this is like early 90s, maybe mid 90s, like 93, 94. And uh, so I went and I met Bill and we clicked right away. And uh, so I did that show and I started to see like, this was like a point at which I was like, I got to, I got to find a way out of uh, Big Nazo. Not because, again, not because it wasn't like I didn't like the work and I didn't like what we were doing, but I just wanted to do my own stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I was, uh, I was burned out mm-hmm. on, on, on the, just all of it, like not having control over it to some degree, but also like I needed to figure out how to make more money so I could just not be constantly worried that I was going to make my rent. Yeah. So I did that show with Bill and then I kind of got involved in his band and he and I became friends. And I was at this point where like I was still in Big Nazo and I wasn't making any money and I was really flat broke, like truly flat broke. And I did this thing with Bill, he was doing like a radio show in Newport and I did it for him. So it wasn't even a paid gig. Mm -hmm. And this is another watershed moment. We were driving home from this radio show in his van. And I was like, I gotta, this, this is it, man. I gotta like go get a regular job again. Like I can't, I don't have any money. Like I don't have, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I I got like a hundred bucks money. Uh, and he was really like, you, you can't, like, something is going to break, like, you don't give up. And I was really mad at him, because he was really successful at this point, and he was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's easy for you to say, man, like, you know, and I didn't say that, but I definitely felt it. You know, I was pissed off. I was just like, what? I, something's going to break, like, what are you talking about? And I swear to God, this is true. Three days later, four days later, his wife calls me up. And she's like, it's the middle of the winter. I have no gigs. I don't have any money. It's bleak. And she's like, are you busy in January? I was like, no, I don't have any gigs at all. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I can give you like 20 shows right now. And I was like, what? You know, like she's she like, Bill has 20 shows booked yeah. at schools, mostly at schools. Yeah. 
And he was at the Y this morning, and he broke two of his fingers playing basketball. And he can't play the guitar. And I was like, put him on the phone. And she puts him on the phone, and I was like, you said something was going to break. I didn't think it was going to be your fingers. <laughs> and uh, and I did those gigs with him, and we developed this really cool rapport in these in these shows because he was totally at my mercy. Oh, okay. You know, also, like you still did the shows with with Bill, or yeah. yeah. So I, like he broke his finger. Like they needed me to play accompaniment because he couldn't play. Yeah. So, you know, and they were like, I don't know what they were paying me, but it was a lot of money to me. I think it was like 80 or 100 bucks a show. Mm-hmm. And there were 20 of them. It was like, it was, I was like, I'm going to make $2,000 this month. I've never made $2,000 yeah. as a musician. So we did all these shows. And then Bill and I kind of worked this shtick evolved, you mm-hmm. know, because he couldn't play. And I, you know, I would like refuse to play. And like we, <laughs> and it was just <laughs> hilarious. And we, our friendship really, like we were already friends, but it really bloomed in that, in that yeah, point. Yeah. And, you know, and we, and I got to talk to him a lot and, you know, and so he was like, I think you can do a thing. I think he always envisioned that I would put together some kind of comedy troupe, like what I do with the review, but more for like schools and kids and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But by the time that summer rolled around, oh, I'm sorry, it was still that winter. Uh, the guy who runs Perishable Theater, who ran it at the time, Mark Lerman, came into my studio at ASA 20 and he handed me this flyer and it was from the Rhode Island Summer Reading Program. So it was the Office of Library Services. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're looking for performers to do the summer reading program. You know, you can, we'll give you, if you, if you get selected, we'll give you a bunch of shows that you can do at libraries around the state for the summer. So I was like, no, oh, it's interesting. And then a half an hour later, the woman who ran Groundworks Dance Theater, which was also all in the same building, hands me the same flyer. She's like, this seems like you. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, like neither of them were going to do it because it wasn't enough money for a theater group to do. Mm-hmm. You know, the shows are paying like, I think $110 for a show. So I was like, all right. And the audition was in like um, three weeks, two weeks. So I sent in the little flyer and mailed it back and they're like, great, come do a 10 minute audition. And I was Oh my God. So I wrote 10 minutes of material, did not have a kid's show. I wrote like a song. I was like, what am I going to put in this kid's show? What do I, what do I, what am I doing now? At the time, like I was playing piano in Big Nazo and a, and a million other bands. Um, you know, I was working with Bill and I was freelance illustrating for the new paper. So I was doing illustrations for them too, for okay. little tiny bits of money Yeah, and, and food, you know, restaurant trade uh which was also very important and so i said oh i'll make a kid's show i don't want it to be just like bill but i you know so i pulled this storytelling component from working with him which i really learned a lot from him and from mark levitt working with him about how to write stories and i wrote some songs and i decided i was going to put drawing in the show because that was another thing i was doing i was just going to put it all in one hopper and see what Mm -hmm. comes out so i wrote 10 minutes i don't even remember exactly what it was i think it was a song where i would play the song for a while and then I would like jump up from the piano and like draw a picture and like, and then they were like, okay, you got the gig. So that was in December or January. And then the show started in June. So I had six months to write a one hour show. So I wrote like a 15 minute story. I wrote a bunch of songs. I wrote some drawing shtick. Yeah. And I just built this show, you know, (laughs) but again, it was like, it was one of those things where like, once I started doing it, like the show by the end of the summer, the show was, yeah, like and I felt, yeah, like I felt comfortable starting to pursue school gigs. And mm-hmm. so then I started doing that. So then the kids stuff, you know, started being like an anchor gig for me. Mm-hmm. And that really became cemented in 2009. Um, I had a very frustrating experience in a recording studio where I felt like 
a little ripped off and that I'd spent too much money. And so I made this decision in the winter of 2008-9 that I was going to teach myself how to record at home. And so I learned some software and I bought some mics. And I, again, with no experience doing it, I spent a lot of time in studios, but never as an engineer. Yeah. But this is like now, like desktop recording is pretty, like you can do it. You can do it in an iMac. Like, oh, you just get Logic or whatever, Pro Tools or something. Yeah. So I learned Logic and I bought a handful of mics and I, you know, most of what I was doing was keyboard stuff. So it was all direct in with MIDI. Yeah. And I recorded, I, I started working on an album on April, no, sorry, I, uh, yeah, on April 15th, it was tax day. And by June 15th, I had a CD in my hand. Like, it was two months. I wow. just, like, banged it out. Yeah. And recorded it all in my house, set up drums. And it wasn't my house, it was an apartment. Like, set up drums in, like, I don't know how to mic drums. Like, so around this time, um, Sirius XM, I think they started a kids channel in 2005 and Bill was on it and he was like, and I sent him the CD that I made and he was like, you should send this to them. And so I sent them, I had previously sent them some of my earlier CDs and they never really bit, but I was like, oh, all right. So I sent him this CD and they started playing one of the songs on it. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, holy crap. And, uh, you know, national broadcast. And yeah. so, uh, and which CD was this? What's this was Homemade Fun. Yeah. And the song was Watching All the Cars Go By, which was the very first song I recorded for that album. And it was the first song as an engineer I recorded ever. There goes a minivan full up with kids. Dad's in the front seat flipping his lid and I wonder where they're going. Red sports car top rolled down The driver is a circus clown And I wonder where he's going Everyone has a place to be Everyone has a story for me They just keep coming And I wonder why I'm just sitting in the window Watching all the cars go So I went to this children's music conference in New York City, and I meet the lady who is basically running the station, Mindy Thomas, who now has this hugely popular podcast called Wow in the World with Guy Raz from NPR. And oh, like wow, she's, yeah, yeah. she's a massive superstar, mm -hmm. and she still does her show on Kids Place Live. So I met her, and I was sitting at a table with her and Bill's wife, Deb Block, and like, you know, so we're just talking. They're like, oh, it's so great that you're playing. And Debbie's like, I love that song, and blah, blah, blah. And then Debbie, Bill's wife, goes, yeah, and, you know, and it's so great now that Sound Exchange exists. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. She was like, you know what Sound Exchange is? I was like, no. And, like, you know, I just thought, oh, I'll make some dribs and drabs of royalties from ASCAP for these songs. I didn't expect to make any money on it. Yeah. Um, and she was like, oh, you got to find out about Sound Exchange. So do you know what Sound Exchange is? So, so Sound Exchange <laughs> is a thing that happened in the early 2000s. Basically, you know, some musicians, some people who were advocates for musicians' rights lobbied in D.C. and Sound Exchange became formed. And again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the history of this, but basically in the early 2000s, Sound Exchange formed as an artist's advocacy group that collects royalties for artists for performance royalties. Mm -hmm. 
And those royalties, because SoundExchange is a new thing and it's not like BMI and ASCAP collect mechanical royalties, they also collect a pile of fees. And they are also these ungainly organizations that have tremendous overhead. Mm-hmm. And sound exchange is like, we're looking out for artists mm-hmm. and we're collecting these performance royalties. So, so I learned about this and Debbie's like, you have to sign up because it's like real money. And I mm-hmm. was like, Oh, what? So sound exchange is pretty new still in 2009 and they're just swamped with artists trying to sign up. So mm-hmm. there's like a six month waiting period. So meanwhile, that song is being played on the radio and, and, but then I start getting royalty checks from them. And whereas like quarterly, I was getting, you know, checks from ASCAP and I was like excited about it. Like, wow, I got a check from ASCAP for 150 bucks. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. You know, every quarter, you know, <laughs> and uh, I was like, I made $600 in royalties. But the sound exchange royalties were like, you know, when they were playing that song, it was like a few hundred bucks a month. And I was like, oh, and then they yeah. started playing another song from that record. And, uh, and that song, like, again, I, I didn't have satellite radio, so I didn't know what was happening. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, we started playing The Leftovers, which is another song from that CD. Yeah. And it became a hit on that station. And it went to, you know, like, ran up into their top 10 on that station. And, and so then, like, I got a royalty check one month for, like, 1200 bucks, And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, like, never made money like that off my yeah. music for you know, it was making money for me. Yeah. It never happened before. So now I'm like motivated. Like, mm-hmm. so now I so like, I put out another record. So now I'm like, put out another record at home. And, um, and basically long story short, like for as long as I can continue to make music and get it played on satellite radio, you know, that means I can continue to make a life as an artist, you know, and it's still not, you know, it's still hand to mouth in its own way. Um, but between that and school shows and, uh, and teaching improv, you, know, you cobble a thing together mm-hmm. that is hopefully sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, great to hear that you've been able to do that for so long. Yeah, um, yeah. Nineteen eighty-eight is when I when I went on that tour with Big Nazo. You know, yeah. so um, that's thirty. What? How many years is that now? Yeah, thirty-one. Thirty-one years. Yeah. So that's uh, and uh, and there was some really really lean difficult times in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I still have some part. You know, some parts of the year it's like. Mm-hmm get a little scary um but you know i just try to keep figuring out new ways to work as an artist because i don't know anything else at this point and i think i while i'm sure i could go you know do do other things like i have some other cool sort of offshoots so like i'm like an artist in residence at the paul cuffey school um mm-hmm. which is a charter school here in providence and so that's that's like a gig that during the school year like you know where i work in this in that school like you know once a week ish for throughout the year and uh and play and then create stories and songs with them. And, um, so there are gigs that I get that are offshoots of the kids stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of helps sustain it too. Yeah. Um, you know, and so now the super chief trio, like that band we play, but like, you know, nobody's, we're not making a ton of money doing it. It's just mm-hmm. the supplemental stuff. And what kind of stuff do you do with super? Chief so trio? super chief trio kind of formed out of the ashes of the smoking jacket. So it's very similar. Um, for a long time, we were just a trio, just myself on keys and vocal and John Cody on drums and Pam Murray on vocals and trombone. And it was just, I got a gig at this bar in Bristol by myself. It was like I was subbing for somebody who had the gig. Kim Trusty, I think, had the gig and I subbed for her. And I never played solo show, certainly 
only for kids. I had done solo mm-hmm. shows and I had like a, you know, I had an hour and a half's worth of material. This was like a bar <laughs> and like the guy wanted me to play blues from like nine to one. And I was like, so I was just making up songs. I played every song of mine that I knew, and then I was making shit up. And yeah, and eventually I was like, said to Pam, I was like, "You gotta come. I'm dying. Like, you could come I'm help me." Here. Like, and then and so then it became me and her and Johnny, and we were still making up songs and we were playing smoking jacket songs. And I had to learn to really like have a heavy left hand because we didn't have a bass player, so I was mm-hmm. really became better at like left hand bass. Um, and that band became you know, was also really deeply rooted in New Orleans music for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, it was probably early 2000, that band formed in 2000. And, um, you know, a few years later, Tom Ferraro, who was playing with Dave Howard and the High Rollers at the time and had played with all these other different blues bands. It was a heavy, really heavy, very traditional blues guitarist and mm-hmm. really had studied all this stuff and like really knew his stuff. He was like, I see what you guys are trying to do here. I see what this is. And he came and sat in with us once and then, then the next thing I knew, like, we were a five-piece band, and it was him that was like, you know, like, don't change the name of the band. I'm like, we're not a trio anymore. He was just like, so what? It's funny. So yeah, yeah. we just kept the name as a trio. But actually, that has served us in a way because we still do some gigs as a trio. Yeah. You know, we just, when I do, when we do it as a five-piece now with a bass player and a guitar player, um, I just refer to us as the largest trio in Rhode Island. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's absurd. But it's, you know, and Tom kind of steered us into doing um, more swing and um and and more covers Mm -hmm. so we did a lot more cover like the smoking jackets when we played we had like one cover all the rest of it was like original Mm -hmm. and so super chief carried that on we started playing some covers with super chief a lot of professor Longhair and dr john and james booker and that kind of stuff Mm um new orleans heavily new orleans and uh and then tom came in and it was like more yeah more more swing and more like jump and uh you know he would again he had he was really a student of this music. So he he had a lot of feelings about how stuff should be played. And Mm -hmm. um, so when we play with just the three of us, we do, uh, I would say a more eclectic mix of stuff, more, we lean more new Orleans and ragtime. And then when we play with the five piece, we lean more like swing and and we still do new Orleans, of course, but um, Mm -hmm. there's more swing stuff in it with the bigger band. So that's what super chief does is we play a lot of swing dances and, places where people where swing dancers like to go mm-hmm. so, so that's i still get my cookies playing <laughs> that music too as cool. it were. yeah what would you say is your greatest musical accomplishment wow that's really hard um uh it's really hard because of the diversity of stuff that i do mm-hmm. i think um you know benny's musical is up there just in terms of it really succeeded at what it was trying to do. But for me, I was also like, I'm not, I'm not a person who was like raised on or was a fan of musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, my fiance, uh, Katie is a huge fan of it. And so sort of before and during and continue, she's kind of hipped me to a lot of the, the better of that stuff. And I've gone to see a bunch of shows with her. So mm-hmm. um, that was actually incredibly helpful for writing Benny's the musical. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I wrote some of the best music I've ever written in my life for that show. Just like, it's, it, it was hot. It's hard, you know, because there's a lot of um, like music and lyrics, you know, there's, yeah. there's a, because there's both exposition and emotion in these songs and um, they're doing a lot. The songs have to do a lot, yeah. you know, so I've, I'm incredibly proud of uh, the music I wrote for that show. 
And, um, and then I'd say, uh, you know, the, the albums that I recorded, uh, the last few kids albums that I've recorded, I'm, I'm really proud of not, not specifically because they're getting played on the radio, just because I think it's, the songs are really, they, they are meaning more to me now that I, that I have a a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, not so much that I'm, you know, certainly there's more material, um, that you're getting, but it's, I feel the weight of responsibility of writing them now that I'm a parent. Like, what do, what do I want to say in these, in these songs? And, and really what it is, is like, you know, it's just honoring childhood. It's honoring the experiences of, Mm -hmm. of kids. And, and I would say also the, the reality, the awkward reality of kids and parents, kids and adults having to occupy the same world Mm -hmm. with completely different agendas, you know, and, uh, and that's chaos. It's chaos. (laughs) It's, it's complete chaos. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, proud of uh, the last few kids albums I made, but you know, I'd say like um, that and, and Benny's and have, have been the two big things that I'm like, I feel like, really strongly about Mm -hmm. in terms of pride for well thank you so much yeah man appreciate your time it was great to talk to you Clown.